2: Anyone who's listening to this broadcast right now, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, a nice happenstance that you're actually able to receive it because, frankly, at the moment, you have no protections from your broadband operators speeding it up or slowing it down or blocking it altogether uh, beyond them including a note in their terms of service saying, we happen to block discussions about books.
3: In his new book, Paradoxes of Network Neutralities, Russell Newman tracks the history of the recent debates on net neutrality, as well as examining the connections with these debates to more current debates on algorithmic decision-making and surveillance. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. One of the first things we always like to do on New Books and Technology is to know about the author. So who is Russell Newman? Russell Newman.
2: Right, well, I'm an assistant professor at uh, Emerson College in Boston right now I'm a communication scholar that specializes in the worlds of the political economy of communication and communications policy uh, media activism I study uh, the political economy of surveillance and its significance to communications policy and I teach courses and all these things law as well as uh, critical histories of advertising and marketing and it's new data-oriented dimensions, as well as democratic theory. But before I came back to the Academy, I was a research and campaign director with a national advocacy organization called Free Press that focuses on issues of uh, consolidating media, uh, uh, smaller companies getting bought up by larger ones, implications for journalism, as well as tech policy uh, in the realms of privacy, as well as net neutrality that we'll be talking about uh, today. But leading up to that, I was actually the thing that got me into this in the first place was I was I was playing in bands as a drummer in, in punk rock and avant garde bands. I was doing radio in Boston and in non-commercial stations. Uh, and I was working as a production designer for a number of uh, very small films that maybe by the time I retire might actually see the light of day. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we'll say more, no more of those. But yeah, so I came from a media production background and came to recognize the importance of independent media and how threatened it is in the U.S. And that's how I got to where I am today.
3: What about your time at Free Pass? Like, how has that shaped how you or what you study, but also like how you see this space that we're in currently with respect to, um, broadband and internet and, uh, Communications.
2: Well, the thing that, so I was involved with Free Press back in its very early days. So I was mm-hmm. there from 2003 until about the, the latter half of 2006, and at that point, we were just getting off the ground, but we kind of exploded in size, and it's, it's a really large organization now, but what was so revealing about uh, working there was just how, you know, for one thing, it had seemed for a long time that this thing, media policy, was just this esoteric realm that that was just... Something that experts, you know, needed to grapple with, and you and me as regular, run-of-the-mill people didn't really have much say. And the fact of the matter is, as soon as you start inserting uh, the ordinary folks into these debates, you can actually have quite the impact. I mean, the fact that for a brief time, uh, not five years ago, you know, we managed to actually do what seemed impossible in those early days, which was having, you know, convince an FCC here in the U.S. to actually institute really strong non-discrimination rules over broadband communication saying that AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile and others would not be allowed to speed up, slow down, throttle, uh, or uh, accept payments to give priority to certain things. You know, the fact that we managed to get those rules passed you know, it, it sounds like very basic things. This sounds like, you know, that's how telephones work forever, and we've been involved in decades of debates to try and get our broadband networks to that same place. So for a brief time, we had those rules. I mean, those are now gone, but my time at Free yeah, Press keeps me an optimist about trying it. to instill <laughs> <little bit>. yeah, <laughs> so the book is policies that actually of benefit network the public and marginalized uh, voices. Yeah, why so why the a plural? Cynical about <laughs> it. The plural, because, so... Uh, over time, So network neutrality itself in the popular press right now, and thank goodness there is this generalized understanding that net neutrality is, you know, if you ask someone who's been at least following this a little bit, they will say net neutrality is the principle that if I own a broadband wire, I can't make any decisions for you about what you can and cannot access. It's that simple, right? Some organizations have called it a First Amendment for the Internet. But its it's not just a tech issue. It's a... Civil rights issue. I mean, many of the the reason that we know of you know, the reason that Black Lives Matter. You know, came to the fore was because someone was streaming it. Mainstream media came late to the party in terms of reporting on police repression of communities and beyond. You know, Mm -hmm. needed neutral internet in order to learn about these things. And as activist groups, you know, start to harness the power of these tools that exist, uh, you know, that's that's how stories have finally broken and spread, even despite perhaps blackouts by large media outlets and mainstream media outlets you know, until they can't ignore it anymore. Uh, but network neutrality as a debate, you know, if you actually look at how it played out behind the scenes, it goes through several iterations. And frankly, you know, one of the benefits I had working at Free Press was I got to see, I spent, I was kind of a jack of all trades. It was a—it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I love teaching. So Free Press is like a number two next to the number one job I have now. But the, while I was there, I spent you know, about three quarters of my time going out and speaking with community groups about these issues. But then I would spend a chunk of time working with our lobby shop in D.C. So we were we were playing an outside-inside strategy where you, you were seeking to harness the voices of people outside the Washington Beltway to the ends of, you know, just where do we need to point this inside Washington in order to start affecting the votes of legislators and regulators, right? Uh, In fact, there's, there's really two debates playing out at once, which is really interesting. So there's one set of debates that plays out inside the Washington Beltway, and there's a particular way that you have to define terms, right? There's a certain mode of economic theorizing that's decades old that folks in the DC arena needed to engage in order to actually be seen as legitimate at all in the halls of Congress and at mm-hmm. the FCC. If you're not using particular language, then you're seen as, okay, well, that's, it's, I'm, I'm happy to hear from you, but I'm going to go talk to an expert now and see what I should actually be doing. You know, whereas outside Washington, the stakes of these debates, you know, it's very clear to folks what the stakes are of a non-neutral internet, of of a local newspaper getting bought up by a hedge fund and then being, you know, essentially soaked of its assets until it finally dies and now no one's even covering your town at all. I mean, these are these are these are very real issues on the ground. Yeah. So, uh, it, but when you know, something that was interesting back at Free Press was as soon as you,
1: you know, one of
2: my colleagues used to say, you needed to have two of three things to have input in Washington in a way that actually will generate change. You need to either have money, yeah. or you need to do it right. You know, and we didn't have that. Uh, very few of us have that. So if you don't have money, you need to have constituency and you need to have expertise. Mm -hmm. So if you have two of those three, then you can start getting things done. And constituency, you know, over the course of the years I was there and beyond, you know, but the last FCC proceeding on net neutrality that, I, that, we'll, that we'll talk about where kind of disaster took place, you know, we had 25 million comments inserted into a FCC hearing, which is unheard of historically. Mm-hmm. In the early days of, of my activism at Free Press, you look at a docket at the FCC, and maybe there's a couple lawyers and about 30. You could read all the documents in the course of two days if you sat down and set your mind to it. Right. No longer possible. No longer possible now. Um, And that's good. (laughs) That's a good thing that is no longer possible now Uh, in some ways, you know, which which we'll talk about. There's now the issue of fraud in the docket and such. But uh, when folks outside the Beltway would 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 come to inside the Beltway, oftentimes you would find, you know, certain offices would get nervous. You know, they would say, wait, we've had a bunch of, we've had a bunch of crazies come to our office. So these really your people and you'd almost have to apologize for, you know, folks coming and defending their interests and saying, well, here, let me translate what they're saying into the language of, oh uh, what, I don't know, net consumer surplus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And then all of a sudden everybody calms down and says, okay, you know, this is, this is, this is just fine. Uh, I saw that too. I, for a time I was a telecommunications fellow inside Senator Richard Durbin's office. Mm -hmm. And I was partly responsible for an initiative that the office ran, uh, called the legislate, but we were going under the name of the legislation 2.0 initiative, where we teamed up with, uh, a blogger at the time named Matt Stoller, who's now gone on to, 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 other things. He's recently released his own book, which is outstanding, um, on, uh, on antitrust and more. He's working on these issues. But at the time we teamed up with him to have a week of live blogging about issues of telecommunications policy. And this was right as the iPhone was coming out. And so the objective was let's get, you know, let's, Here's an opportunity for regular folks outside the Beltway to just log in and talk with members of you know urban staff, uh, with the senator himself, and with folks who are following these issues on a regular basis. And just, you know, when we were actually running, you know, the objective was to take this input from everyone out yeah, from outside D.C. and turn it into a new telecommunications act of sorts and introduce it in Congress. And this would be, you know, citizen driven, you know, it would just be driven by people outside. And that second step never really happened. And it was interesting to see how some comments were received because it just seemed, you know, there were moments where, uh, you know, folks outside the office were almost out wonking us in some ways. And this is <laughs> not necessarily a good thing, right? It was seen as, okay, well, here's everybody came, and everybody's, you know, had peak volume because net neutrality was reaching a fever pitch at that point, And the sender hadn't really taken a strong stance on it yet, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of fascinating in and of itself. And he was trying to kind of dance around it. And ultimately, you know, if a vote was happening, he would come down. We were pretty convinced on the uh, on the pro side of the issue. But the time was, you know, to, to say anything in that regard, you risk making a telecommunications company angry and telecommunications companies are everywhere and they do have that money part of the triad you need to create change <laughs> right so uh, citizen input and regular folks input uh, was was good for building publicity it was not necessarily good for structuring <laughs> a new policy you know it was it, the, the biggest effect of that event was, you know, maybe we drew some attention to some of these issues. And even then, you know, telecommunications providers themselves refused to take part. They sat back and they sent proxies. So a group called Hands Off the Internet would show up, which was you know, largely funded by telecommunications interests and others. But the telecom companies and broadband companies stayed away. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to legitimate this, but they made sure to send someone in their stead. So Did we actually move the issues forward at all? No, not really. You know The office gained publicity. That's sort of the challenge when it comes to... Creating change in D.C. with this outside inside strategy that many groups, you know, like move on and beyond have started to implement. There's sort of limits to this strategy that I wanted to explore in the book. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, what's, what net neutrality was about inside the beltway itself was shifting. So when Obama was elected and Julius Genachowski became FCC chairman, you know, members of his staff in interviews, I, I learned that members of his staff approached public interest groups and said, you know, we really need to frame this in terms of access. And when you read some of these early decisions on uh, an open internet policy or net neutrality policy, the justification for it was always this creates a virtuous cycle. If we have a neutral internet, then we end up with expanded internet access. And this becomes, you know, so you're less justifying it because a neutral internet is just at base a good thing. You're justifying it because this will increase internet access. And that becomes the hammer that the Trump administration is able to use to absolutely eliminate it. Mm. So justifications absolutely matter. I mean, what we, what has become very clear to the broader public is the political economic side. There are muddied interests. There's corruption inside the process. All of this is absolutely true. So by the same, yeah, sorry, go
3: ahead. No, I I just want to like perhaps clarify some term of you've used and that is political economy, right? So what does that actually mean?
2: Yeah. So a political economist, it's a it's a mode of analysis. It's actually a you know, those it's a kind of it's a view that takes into account that in communications policy, for instance, we're constantly setting up what we would term past dependencies. As mm-hmm. soon as you make a decision, certain futures open to you. Other futures are foreclosed. mean this happens in daily life. I teach students at Emerson College. They chose Emerson over other colleges they could have gone to. And they have just set up a past dependency in their lives that certain futures are now impossible for them. You know, better or worse, you know, for the students I teach, definitely, you know, predominantly better. I mean, I think they made good choices. We all like to think we make good choices. But as soon as you make a choice about a first job or something that you apply to, then, you know, there's no take backs, right? Well, in the communications realm, uh, political economists taken to a part uh, the roles of, uh, you know, basic, uh, uh, the interests of a communications company in desiring certain policies, you're examining how policies are made, but then you're paying attention to how those policies feed back into a broader environment that then render new choices that you have to make, right? And then that feeds into new choices that get made at the policy level and are fought out under different terms and fought out in new ways. The political economists pay attention to the politics of decisions that are being made, but also this economic side, you know, who benefits, who loses, what are the incentives that are baked into systems? As they emerge, and how do past dependencies that emerge after decisions are made, you know, sh- start to shift that broader environment, such that okay, here's a new choice to be made. You know, what are the implications of making this choice versus this choice? You know, uh, Ajit Pai at the FCC has made the argument: if I get rid of all these rules that telecommunications providers have had to live under, these onerous rules, now we'll have broadband everywhere, finally, and won't you be pleased with me when? Since he's eliminated these rules, we've actually seen a universe where AT&T has said we're going to slow down fiber deployment. Verizon said, you know, that you know this fiber to the home thing was fun for a while, but we're going to kind of cut back on this. You know, the universe hasn't unfolded the way that Haji Pai was advertising it would if he only got rid of these onerous rules mm. of uh, trans, you know, transmitting unadulterated, you know, what users were seeking, you know, when they, when they click on a link on the web or try to send an email or listen to a podcast. That was a really long definition. I apologize to your listeners for for not being clear. <laughs> no.
3: no, you made it clear, uh, and and we thank you for that. So, in the book, you say you you argue that you want to air out the usual narrative surrounding the network neutrality debate in the United States. So, what do you mean yeah. by that? So, the usual narrative,
2: even today, even as this debate is, is raging, I mean, it's hardly over. In fact, the, the even though a court uh, in late last year, you know, said, you know, what Pi did was legal, thus we have no choice but to go along with it, you know, except in these particular ways, you know, that's now being challenged and probably in the course of the next few months, it may or may not get a rehearing. So this is, this is an ongoing debate, but the usual story about net neutrality starts generally, uh, in either 2002 or 2005, back when the George W. Bush administration made a decision that said, uh, cable wires are, you know, if you own a cable wire, you don't have to allow some other cable company to, you
0: know,
2: buy access to your wire to reach users you know telecommunications wires on the other hand at that time were required to do so so it was the beginning of a stage where if you owned a broadband pipe of some sort it was the beginning of shutting those down so that you had exclusive control over those which was actually a big change you know at this time and the story that unfolds from there is, you know is usually it generally starts there you know bush fcc shuts down access to cable wires you know the telecommunications companies you know, all want the same thing, you know, a series of court battles rage. And by the mid 2000s, uh, the the phone companies have gained the same privilege. If I'm AT&T, I no longer need to allow all these other small or competing telecommunications companies to have any access to my customers or folks that are touched by my wires. You own the wire. It is totally yours, which sets up a you know, potential for you to be able to shut down, speed up, slow down communications and network neutrality becomes the key thing you're fighting for based on the past dependency that has been set in. I'm arguing in the book a couple things. One, that starts the history way too late. Mm. If we really want to understand how network neutrality has played out is in terms of a debate you know, right now where it does seem to be, you know, when you, when you lay out who's on what side, you have basically the telecommunications companies and cable companies that are not in favor of net neutrality versus virtually every other single living thing on earth that can express an opinion, right? So Mm -hmm. if my cats could express an opinion, they'd probably be in favor of net neutrality (laughs) as well. It just, it seems to be everybody, everybody, you know, against, the table and telecommunications companies, right? Uh, And this is generally talked about playing out in terms of a corrupt environment where we have an FCC that is enthralled to powerful broadband interests. Okay, so to an extent, this is all true, right? Uh, The argument I'm making in the book is if you actually trace the history of uh, the making of not just telecommunications policy, but the justifications for telecommunications policy back decades to where a particular strain of economic theorizing is actually being constructed. You know, we get a very different view and add this other layer that looking forward actually starts to tweak how we who call ourselves either either media reformers or media justice advocates might need to think about policy itself or how we go about doing our activism itself. Uh, the terms that I saw being debated in Washington and even the construction of this abstract concept, uh, network neutrality, you know, by Tim Wu in the early 2000s, Tim Wu's notion of network neutrality was one, it was a saving grace to activists who were fighting a different battle leading up to that. He kind of breathed new life into the ability for activists to make demands of broadband carriers to not discriminate against certain content and to make it possible for the internet to uh, be an environment where marginalized voices can finally really rise to the fore and compete with more mainstream voices. Mm -hmm. So network neutrality as a concept breathes New necessary life into these debates and extends that debate by you know now going on about two decades, so really good effect now, but how we construct this thing you know does he justify it in his initial policy paper, and this seems obscure, but it actually terrifically matters you know, does he justify it on the basis of You know, this is just a a, a good in and of itself. No, he actually turns to a strain of economic theory, you know, evolutionary economics that says what we desire aboard broadband networks is actually the ability for the best voices to rise to the surface. Mm -hmm. It's a competition for the best voice. And this is even how he expresses it in the paper. And this seems incidental at the time. But that's kind of the last thing you want the internet to do. you don't want just one voice to win. you want all voices to have the ability you know to be heard right Democratic theory doesn't say let one voice win. you know democratic theory is about how do we actually listen to voices and make new voices mm-hmm. available. It enters a discourse where you know others who argue in uh, when it comes to should we allow a, a, a large newspaper company to purchase a small one, you know, this, it enters a discourse where some of the economic theorizing undergirding those debates are saying, you know, if we have 100 papers, what really is the value of 100 plus one? Is there a point at which having another paper or another voice turns out to just be incidental instead of vital? Mm-hmm. And this is antithetical to anything that someone out in the streets demanding net neutrality or demanding their voice be heard or are protesting the closure of their local paper by the hedge fund it's owned by that, you know, that hundred first voice is absolutely vital mm-hmm. always.
3: So, and in fact, if you can get the hundred second voice even better, right? In the book, you talk about neoliberalism. Yeah. Um And so could you first define neoliberalism for everyone, but then, Can you connect that to broader schemes with respect to like lobbying and lobbyists and how are our government, both agencies and Congress are functioning right now in general?
2: Oh, yeah. So neoliberalism is this, I mean, it's one of those words that we in the Academy, I mean, folks who are listening to this podcast, you know, you you're, thank your lucky stars that you're, you're not reading the word neoliberalism all the time, although it's becoming, <laughs> it, it, it is something that's out in the air now, and it's being, you know, in, in magazines like Jacobin and beyond, you know, neoliberalism has become a term of debate. Most of the time when we're talking about neoliberalism, the overarching sense is how do we, It's it's a move, over the course of the last few decades, where it's about uh, bringing things that hadn't been part of a market relationship before into a market relationship. You know, for example, the Affordable Care Act is about as neoliberal a policy as you can imagine. Right. On the one hand, you know, how do we go about bringing health care to people? Well, there's one way where other countries do it where we all pay taxes and we use that to actually fund a national health service. But we took a different tack. You know, we instead said, okay, we're going to create markets. We're going to create new markets and we're going to require everybody who wasn't in this market before to be to enter it and to make a purchase in these private marketplaces for insurance. And if you don't. Purchased health insurance in these marketplaces. We're going to penalize you, you know, via a fee that you will have to pay every year. So we're going to force you into a health insurance market, and this is how we are going to get everybody to a place where they are covered to some extent You know, here in the United States. That's a neoliberal solution in that if you hadn't been part of this market because either you couldn't afford it or you know have been excluded from it, now you're going to be in it. That is a particular way of visualizing a solution to a broader societal problem. And when we're talking about neoliberalism, it's about the commodification of things. You know, a park bench in a park to a city no longer is just a park bench. It's an opportunity to put an advertisement on it and bring in revenues, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, city of LA, look at the the benches at bus stops. They are advertising venues and they'll even put those little dividers on it to make sure you can't sleep on them. You know, is it for public safety uh, or is it because you want to make sure people don't miss the ad? Who knows? Right? right. So neoliberalism uh, is uh, it, it, generally when you hear the word, it is about mm-hmm. the commodification of spaces that at one point had actually been public or uncommodified. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's another side to neoliberalism that gets a little less talked about. And this is something that I think communication scholars should get a lot more familiar with the work of a economic historian named Philip Morawski, who's done a lot of work, uh, wrote. Uh, a couple of years back, a book called uh, "Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste," uh, and co and he edited a co-edited a book a couple of years back called the "The Road to Mount Pelerin, which is laying out the decades long history of a set of theory, a set of theoretical commitments to set up in the wake of World War II, a strain of economic theorizing that business could find palatable against two countervailing tendencies. On the one hand, you had laissez-faire capitalists that say just, just you know, let markets do what markets do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this could be just as threatening to you as the radical left that's saying you know, maybe capitalism itself is not a legitimate system or requires either dramatic reform, if not uh, complete turning upside down right? So let's develop, and there's a concentrated effort on the part of, you know, it's well-funded by business interests, but it's it's meant to be a realm of contestation that at one and the same time, you know, provides uh, a justification for the growth of market society. How do we go about bringing more things into the realm of the market without necessarily the mayhem that laissez-faire, you know, might perhaps, bring to this, but it's a debate that actually sounds at turn like, you know, this sounds very right wing and this actually sounds a lot more lefty. But when you take the debate as a whole, you know, these arguments that transpire for decades, they might tack left and right within themselves, but the entire works underneath them moves inexorably in one direction, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? It's possible to have a debate that is ferocious, on the surface, but the very act of having that debate, in fact, changes the world in ways that perhaps are less visible. But you know, it changes the world. Setting up a debate in such a way lays the groundwork against which everybody needs to argue and the terms that they need to use. When Tim Wu constructs network neutrality as this evolutionary economics, you know, uh, construct, he's actually engaging this entire stream of theory. And the moment he does it, the moment he introduces this term and defines it the way that he does, all of a sudden everybody who have been in this plane before recognizes these terms and says, I can play with this. I can work with this. Mm-hmm. And we have a ferocious debate inside Washington where, you know, when, regular folks start to throw their own opinions into the works, you see throngs of economists who are part of, you know, usually we call this the Chicago school, but this, you know, this, is the, these, this realm of theorizing extends, you know, well beyond, you know, others are writing about Virginia and beyond. So, and it's international to boot, you know, we've, and we construct organizations to support the theorizing. This is where you get things like the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, and more. You get sort of this Russian doll model of, you know, advocacy organizations building on a realm of economic theorizing, you know, conducted by people who are all, you know, arguably looking for truth and have acquired these sets of terms. Well, you have economists banding together throughout the late 2000s and into the 2010s, just screaming, oh my gosh, this is an economics-free argument. Whenever these riffraffs show up in DC and say, give me an open internet, don't they understand surplus? Don't they understand? These are not the terms we should be using. We should be talking. Entirely about you know how if we just enable Verizon to suck up the uh, total surplus consumed, that'll result in broadband being delivered to households that have never had broadband before. Don't these don't the riffraff understand? You know that they just don't even under, you know they don't really get it at all, mm-hmm. right? So, in many ways, the outside inside model that so many activist organizations uh, employed throughout the late 2000s and, in, and up to the present, you know, they, they're, they're challenging this realm of theory, but at the same time, their lobby shops in D.C. are absolutely engaged in it. And this is by necessity. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the terms that you need to use. One of the big projects that I argue that we're going to have to undertake over the course of the next, you know, decade, two decades, you know, Folks who want to counter the moves that they are seeing in DC right now, if not globally, really, you know, all these policies—they—they they don't just stay in the U.S. We are, you know, it, 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 this is all—we got to think on a global level here. There needs to be a similar counter move to create a new groundwork, and this is something that we in the academy need to be thinking pretty deeply about, you know, about changing the actual terms of debate themselves. And this is a much larger project that would pay off dividends in the long term for activist movement. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't create this other basis for argument slowly over time, supported institutionally, you know, grow new institutions to actually, you know, put into common discourse, new terms, new understandings, new justifications, we're going to be stuck (laughs) in many ways with a future that remains ugly as long as these terms remain unchanged.
3: So one of the terms that I think uh, is important in this conversation Deals with competition. Why is competition only thought of as between two, say, broadband organizations or cable providers, Mm -hmm. but not the uh, possible user and the company? Because it seems to me that that's what we're talking about here. So competition with respect to accessing knowledge, uh, being able to choose uh, the different kinds of products and content that you access. That seems like a competition relationship that we have with our broadband providers and not necessarily this completely neutral transactional relationship.
2: Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, this gets to, you know, what terms and what tools and what institutions are available to us right now to advocate for, you know, policies that might make it, you know, more or less possible for us to access things we want to access. What what you're exactly getting at here is the limit that an outside-inside strategy are facing when antitrust, for instance, is the toolbox at your disposal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that so many advocates today are turning to antitrust, there's an irony in this. Like, number one, you use the tools that you have available to you, you know, when you have access to them. So when uh, when uh, a line who is a law student who published a a, a very influential paper paper called uh, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox? You know, a couple of years back, arguing regular antitrust policy kind of breaks down when we consider these data driven giants, mm-hmm. right? You know, immediately she finds pushback from many of the same corners that pushed back against network neutrality activists. And this is, there's an irony to this. It seems like there's a new move to re-empower, reinvigorate, frankly, resuscitate antitrust policy in the U.S. It's been largely dead, you know, for decades. Antitrust hasn't really saved us from much of anything, you know, of late. You know, we're facing the prospect now of a uh, T-Mobile Sprint merger, you know, with maybe the one bright side being maybe this dish thing will work out. We'll have a... We might have a fourth mobile company that we already have right now, but you know it's pretty much doomed. Who knows what's going to happen to it? But antitrust at the moment is at a place where we can find ways to allow even horizontal relationships like that to to form. So this move to reinvigorate antitrust is both a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing because yeah, let's reinvigorate antitrust. Let's have discussions about breaking up Facebook. I mean, whether that actually addresses core logics in newfangled data capitalism, whatever we want to call this these days or not. But having a discussion about this is nothing but good. The flip side of this is that we are moving right back onto the neoliberal thought collective's home turf. Mm -hmm. It was always about antitrust. It was always about competition policy in particular terms. And antitrust was built on these very terms. So If we're what we're largely doing is saying, you know, you guys seem to have this well-developed game over here. Let us see what we can add to it. In the long term, it's a losing proposition in many ways. Yet, at the same time, one, we have to engage at the moment because of the tools we have at our disposal. But it points to me to a really big need to actually start redefining terms to make an understanding of competition like that, which you were expressing a lot more thinkable in policy circle.
3: So what, where do we go from here?
2: So where I land with this book and the things I'm trying to think through in the course of this book is what media reform and media justice advocacy means in the present context itself is needing to shift. Like my my days at free press and even the the language I still see out of activists that that I still support, you know, see media as this, as how classical liberals saw it. What's the function of your media? Well, it's to disseminate ideas. You know, into the public sphere, we can have discussions about the public sphere and more, and challenges to the notion. But you know, for our purposes here, you know, the function of media is to inform a populace so that when they go vote or make decisions, they're making intelligent decisions, having intelligent debates. The fact of the matter is today, you know, one of the reasons net neutrality was such a threat to someone like a Verizon or an AT and T is because Verizon and AT and T and Comcast want to be the advertising giant that Google and Facebook are these days. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. Your use of media today is not just in the service of some classical liberal ideal, even as it does serve that ideal, like consuming media to inform yourself about things. We still do this, but our act of doing so has become one more set of inputs into a broader logistical structure that, you know, has all sorts of Not necessarily positive effects. Right. You know, and these are the kinds of things that, you know, virtually everybody in the academy is worried about right now, algorithmic discrimination and beyond. You know, what does it mean when, you you know, what does it mean for a newspaper that's even thinking about not just customizing the advertisements? you know, next to an article, but at the article itself for whoever happens to be reading, because the objective is no longer journalism per se. We'll tell ourselves it is, but the function is actually, how can I adjust this journalistic piece such that I can keep someone stuck to the page longer to see more advertising? Right. How do I use journalism to increase the value of the ads? right? You know, you look at the the, the pecking order right now in the journalistic universe—you know—there was a time where publishers were the top of the heap and advertisers had to accede to their demands. That's reversed. Advertisers and data collectors now rule the roost, and journalists have to say, "You know, what more do you need to know about my readers in order to, you know, make them more valuable and thus perhaps?" Provide further subsidization. You know that still these days pales in comparison what to what you used to get for a full-page advertisement in your paper. So the mere consumption of media today has become so different. It serves several ends. You know it serves the liberal democratic end, but it also serves as a broader logistical interface into a, you know, a much larger set of ecosystems that we're only now beginning to understand. So. Really, going forward, we almost need to rethink what media reform means. Mm -hmm. It's actual, you know, media reform means not just defending independent voices and the ability for marginalized voices to see the light of day. Uh, It also means evaluating uh, what logistical processes and new forms of inequality and new forms of marginalization start to appear when the act of consumption itself, might very well result in a new future for you that precludes you from seeing certain information or getting access to a mortgage or Mm -hmm. jacking your auto insurance to the moon or Mm -hmm. any number of ends, right? It's also interrelated. So media policy is actually becoming logistics policy in many ways Mm -hmm. and not just in the realm of communication itself.
3: So what's next for you?
2: That's my, so then the next project I'm working on is to start grappling with, Exactly that. I'm trying to read that's, it. That's what, what I've just told you there is exactly the next book that I'm working on now. I'm trying to envision communications policy as logistics policy. I mean, there's a terrific realm of great work on critical logistics these days, but, connection to communication policy and the feedback loops that result therein and the new interest that Verizon, AT&T have in advertising companies and becoming large media behemoths themselves. I mean, you live in a world now where your telecommunications company, where AT&T is one of the largest content producers in the world now because of their Time Warner acquisition. This is a Mm -hmm. brave new universe that is only beginning to be understood in its implications. And this extends to work others are doing about, you know, how these companies do content moderation and beyond. So I'm thinking through media policy as logistics policy and seeing where that takes us. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much.
3: This has been New Books and Technology.
1: you